You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. Verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away, so that he did not see death, and was not not found because God had taken him, for before he was taken, he had this, this testimony that he pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, verse 8, Abraham. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah. Then in verse 17, by faith, Abraham once again. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac. Verse 21, by faith, Jacob. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, speaking of his uh, parents. Um, And then in verse 30, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. Uh, Speaking of Joshua, verse 31, by faith, the harlot Rahab. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for how gracious you've been to each one of us. Only you know we know a little bit, but what we know leaves us humbled. And we just thank you that you're a gracious God. We thank you for your commitment to us and your call upon our lives. We also just thank you for your faithfulness, how unfailingly faithful you are. Thank you that you keep your promises to us, Lord, all of them. And Lord, each one of us have come with tremendous need into this conference, lots of needs. And one of the greatest needs that we have is to hear your voice at this time in the place we're in, in our calling, your calling upon our lives. We pray that today, this time in your word, would play a part in speaking to the hearts of some, Lord, that have wanted to hear from you in this time, and that this time would be that of speaking something living from your throne into our lives and into our situations We ask for that work of your Holy Spirit, the witness of your Holy Spirit to your word is yea and amen in our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated.
The book of Hebrews was written to Christians who were facing great, great persecution for the simple reason that they were Christians, that they had put their faith in Christ and they were committed to knowing him and walking with him in obedience to him and to his example. And they weren't lightweights. Uh, Earlier in this particular book, we realized that um, they had been through a lot for their faith. There was a time of tremendous persecution upon the early church, and they were bearing uh, the brunt of that persecution. They'd already lost significant relationships in their life. Many had lost all the material things that they had owned. And so we never want to look at these guys as being lightweights that have hit, you know, the first bump in the road and now uh, they're looking at abandoning Christ. But they've, they've been through a lot, but they finally reached this place where the persecution and the hardship that they're facing is so great that they're actually contemplating abandoning their commitment to Jesus alone for salvation and returning to the religious uh, roots of their fathers. And the writer of the book of Hebrews tells them that the proper response to hardship and to persecution because of our faith in the Lord is never apostasy, but it is always faith. The context of chapter 11 is actually found in verse 1 of chapter 12. If you turn to it, you might not need to turn, where we read, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And in declaring this, the writer of the book of Hebrews is likening the Christian life to a foot race. And this is a common analogy within the scriptures. Now, some people believe that this verse is telling us in talking about these Old Testament saints in uh, chapter 11 that uh, they, and like all people that die in uh, in the Lord and uh, go into heaven, that somehow uh, this is speaking of this large group of saints who have died, gone to heaven, and are now watching everything that's happening on the earth from heaven. That's a pretty miserable view of heaven. (laughs) You'll excuse me for having a little higher expectation of it. If I get into heaven and there are flat screen TVs all over the place with CNN and Fox News, that's not my idea of heaven. And so the fact of the matter is, as the Bible teaches, that once we're in heaven, we know very little about what is happening on this earth, thankfully. And about the only thing that we do know that's happening on the earth is when people get saved, because as Jesus said, all of the angels in heaven explode into uh, joy and celebration as a result of it. Now, we need to ask ourselves, who are these witnesses that make up this great cloud of witnesses that the writer is referring to? And these witnesses are this long list of Old Testament saints in chapter 11. So there's Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, mentioned twice, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. And he says in verse 32, time would fail to 
tell of all of the rest of them. So they're witnesses, and that raises the question in our mind, what are they a witness to? And they are a witness to the fact that the life of faithfulness and obedience to God, the life that God has called us to, can be lived whatever the persecution or the hardship that we face. This life that God has called us to can be lived no matter how difficult the circumstances might be. And he lists a lot of different circumstances that characterize uh, the, the lives of his saints in the Old Testament. And you say, how do they know that Uh, This life of faith and obedience to the Lord can be lived in every conceivable circumstance that the world can dish up. And the reason that they know is that they'd already run their race. They had already been faithful to God, and they had already proven it to be true. And now the the writer is saying that they rise up off of the pages of Scripture to encourage us that this race of faith that God has called each one of us to as Christians, it can be run and that it can be finished. And the images that the writer is trying to produce within our minds is one of a great outdoor athletic stadium where the seats are filled inside of the stadium with saints, with men and women of faith, and they are there not merely as spectators to watch the finishing of, of a race, but they are there as witnesses or as testifiers from their own experience that the life of faith can be lived. And so they chant from their places witnesses within the stands, it can be done, it can be done, it can be done. This life of faith and obedience can be lived in every conceivable circumstance that the world might throw against us. So you imagine maybe some of you have run a marathon. You imagine you're running a marathon, and oftentimes a marathon will end in some kind of a place where they can put uh, seating for people to watch the marathon complete. Sometimes marathons will finish within a stadium. So imagine uh, here you are and you're running the, this marathon and uh, you're heading into the tunnel that leads you into the stadium where the last part of that marathon is a lap that is within the stadium. You go through the tunnel to finish that final lap and as you mer- emerge from the tunnel, the crowd rises to its feet, begins to clap and shout encouragement for you. Instantly, we would be energized by their energy. We'd be energized by their affirmation, by their encouragement. Here you are, you're running a marathon, you hit the wall at mile 19, and you don't even know how you have gotten to the end of the race. It's just been one foot in front of the other. You don't know whether you're dead or whether you're alive. And then that encouragement bursts upon you, and you find yourself even sprinting then to finish the race. That's the power of, of encouragement, and that's the encouragement that God wants chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews to be to each of us as Christians in our times of persecution 
and difficulty, where we hear each one of these witnesses rise up and shout to us in the privacy of our own heart at just the right time that it can be done, it can be done, you can run this race, and you can finish this race of faith and service, and you can do it successfully. Now, what is faith? And he gives us, uh, tells us what faith is a little bit in verse 1. And in verse 1, we have not so much a definition of faith, but maybe something even better than a definition, because verse 1 is a practical description of how faith responds to the various circumstances that confront us in life. And so he writes there and declares by faith. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. Some of us might sit here this morning and say, yes, I've read that many times, and you've made it no clearer for me <laughs> today than it's ever been. That, that, that doesn't help us, uh, some of us in, in the room. So how about a little bit of a translation of a translation? Faith is living in an absolute confidence in what God has said or promised, even when the fullness of the promise isn't seen yet. And I think the Living Bible is very helpful here. The Living Bible is not always helpful, but here the Living Bible is helpful. And it goes like this. What is faith? It is the confident assurance that something we want of God's promises is going to happen. It is the certainty that what we hope for is waiting for us, even though we cannot see it up ahead. And so faith is believing something to be true simply because God has said it or he has promised it. And we notice that no serious Christian is, or servant of the Lord is going to escape having to live a life of faith in verse 2 because it's there we find a good testimony. None of us will ever hear that, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord without running this race of faith and or without, uh, apart from this thing called faith. Then he moves on in this passage having made his point, and he literally calls kind of 17 witnesses to the witness stand, so to speak, to uh, testify from their place in the Old Testament to establish this fact, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. And the first witness he calls is Abel in verse 4. And we remember from the book of Genesis that Abel was killed by his brother Cain, and Abel's faith was demonstrated in that he offered to the Lord a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, uh, Abel offered the sacrifice to God that God had required of man, and so he brought the firstlings of his flock, an animal sacrifice, offered it to the Lord, and Cain then was a farmer, and in defiance of God's command, he offered an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, the work of his own hands. 
and he is a picture of the person who is determined to have a relationship with God and to one day go to heaven based upon his own terms, not based upon God's terms, based upon his own effort, on his own works, rather than acting in faith upon what God has said. And when Cain's sacrifice was rejected by the Lord, Instead of repenting and doing the right thing, he decided to kill his brother Abel. And this persecution of those who live faithful to God's revelation concerning salvation and a relationship with God by religions who believe that salvation and a relationship with God is based upon religion or human effort, that persecution, and it goes on all over the world, and it's coming to us rapidly in this nation, and it's going to come from within professing Christianity. They are going to marginalize us and make us the bad guys for standing strong in what God's Word says so that people can say, hey, not all Christians are like you. I've got a bunch of Christians over here that say that they don't believe that, and so you're the oddball. And the marginalization is going to come. And Abel rises from the pages of Scripture to encourage us that God can be obeyed and he is to be obeyed whatever the religious persecution and rejection we might face as a result of staying true to God's word. He then moves to Enoch in verses 5 and 6. We're told that Enoch pleased God. And so what is it about Enoch that pleased God? And we're told that from Genesis chapter 5, where it's repeated twice that Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God in verses 21 through verse 24. God repeats it twice concerning Enoch. And he walked with God for a period of 300 years. So you say, what's the significance of that? Well, here you've got a group of Christians who have walked with the Lord for a number of years, and they feel like they have reached the end of their resources. They're thinking about getting out, and so they can't even think in terms of being faithful uh, for another week or another month. And then here God speaks to them of Enoch, who walked with God for 300 years. And not only did Enoch walk with God for over 300 years, but he walked with God at a time in which the world was growing progressively more evil uh, over the course of those 300 years. And Jude brings that out in verses 14 and 15. And so Enoch teaches us that we can do the same. We can walk faithfully with God no matter how evil the world becomes around us. And that, uh, that's the world that Enoch stayed faithful to God in, and that's the current condition of the world and the nation that we live in. And then in verse 7, he speaks of Noah. And we remember, someone told me in our church, I mentioned Noah recently in a sermon. He said, don't go to see the movie. It'll just infuriate you. <laughs> I had no intention. I knew it would infuriate me. So, but we remember that God warned Noah of coming judgment. And as a result of it, he told Noah, commanded Noah to build that ark. 
And the ark, of course, was a means of salvation in the midst of that judgment. And so by faith, the Bible says, filled with godly fear, he built that ark. Took him about 100 years to do that. It was a good thing that he did do that because he and his family made their way onto that ark, God's plan of salvation, and they were saved. And the rest of the world responded to Noah's obedience to the Lord by uh, mocking him and even worse through indifference on their part. And by faith, Noah teaches us concerning this thing called faith that we can obey God and live for God even if no one else does in the whole wide world. That's powerful. That's powerful. So we love what's going on here. We need one another. I say, if you were left all alone, some of you, some people, there are Christians around the world, they are all alone in their village or wherever. God gives them the grace to stand for God and to obey God, even in that environment. Concerning faith, Noah teaches us that we are to be faithful to God if he asks us to do something that he's never asked anyone else to do before. They thought he was crazy building an ark for a coming flood. It had never even rained yet in human history. Think about the jokes that were going around concerning Noah and the scorning, and yet he built it. And Noah teaches us that we can walk with God even if the whole world thinks me a fool for doing so. I tell you, I'd love to be the Lord's fool, but nobody's a fool in the Lord. Who cares what the world thinks about uh, us? Then he moves on to Abraham in verses 8 through 10. And we're told that Abraham was willing to go out not knowing where he was going. And we remember that from Genesis chapter 12. God gave him one step, gave Abraham the first step in his uh, life and in his ministry, but didn't reveal the whole plan to him. Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And he obeyed God just having a part of the revelation of God's will. There's no guarantee for where he was going to end up. He was just told initially to leave where he was. I have a friend of mine who the Lord has done the very same thing in his life, told him to get up and move out of where he was and didn't give him the rest of the story. Well, you know, it's um, it, at least the Lord told me where I was going when he sent me to Modesto. And, but this is how he worked in, in uh, Abraham's life. And he obeyed God when God gave him only half the revelation no guarantee for where he would end up. And so often, I can't speak for you, but I don't mind a step of faith as long as God tells me everything that's going to happen on the other side of it, <laughs> which isn't faith at all. But I like, then I like to think that I am uh, a man of, of faith. And so faith is willing to obey God, not knowing where it's going to lead, possessing only the knowledge that wherever it is, I'll be in his will, which, of course, is all that matters. And so oftentimes God will only give us step one in his plan for our lives and only reveal step two after we have obeyed step one. And that's important for us to hear and because he does that in our lives. And in a room like this, it's going to be more than one person that he operates that way. So you're not crazy. Everybody thinks you're crazy. Even Christians think you're crazy. 
Remember when I left uh, Napa, it was a very nice part of California, uh, to go to Modesto, which is a very nice part of California, just not as nice. And, uh, and I remember I quit the job at the phone company in the middle of the recession, and one of my good friends, his mother, said, when she heard that I quit the job, she said, that, would have, that's a, that job would have been there until hell freezes over. And, uh, well, thank you very much. I've already quit, and thank you for the encouragement uh, related to that. Then he moves on to Sarah in verses 11 and 12. And Sarah's faith was demonstrated in her willingness to believe God's promise that she would bear a child in old age. And so she's 90 years old. Abraham was about 99 years old. They'd never had a child their whole life. And the the reason was was because Sarah was uh, barren. And yet she believed that God would do what he had promised. And so often we read some promise of God in his word, and then we weigh it in the light of our own resources, our own talent, our own ability, and we then declare that what he's calling me to do or what he's telling me to do is, you know, humanly impossible. We weigh the promises of God in the light of our own limitations and our own inadequacies. And Sarah teaches us, that's why she's being brought up here, not to do that. And the result of her faith against all human odds, against every physical reality, she ended up having a child by the name of Isaac. And so Sarah teaches us the importance of believing in God's promises, even in the face of human impossibility. If it were humanly possible, then it wouldn't require faith. But then I like to think that's faith. But Sarah teaches us different. Abraham surfaces again in verses 17 through 19. And we're told in faith he was willing to offer up his son Isaac to the Lord. And he knew that God had told him that he was going to make a great nation of his son Isaac. And so he knew that God had called him to uh, be willing to offer up his son, but that if he went up on Mount Moriah and did so, that then God would raise him from the dead in order to uh, keep that promise. And in this, Abraham teaches us that faith is willing to obey God even when that obedience has the potential to cost us something uh, that we hold very, very dear in life. But we do it with the knowledge that when God calls us to do that, it's only because he's going to do something outrageously great uh, as a result of that sacrifice. The old saying, and we've all heard it, you can't outgive God. We will never be his debtor. And so when he calls us to do that, he's got something fabulous in mind. In verse 21, there's the mention of uh, Jacob. And we remember concerning Jacob that there came the time that he was supposed to pronounce the blessing upon uh, Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, his grandsons. And uh, in order to obey the Lord, he took and he broke with the tradition of his family and he uh, gave the blessing and the birthright not to the older but to the younger. And he did so against the uh, protesting, uh, vigorous protesting of Joseph. And yet God had told him uh, to do that. And uh, despite that heavy pressure, he refused that 
pressure, and he stayed faithful to God. And so like Isaac or like Jacob, we must be faithful to God's calling despite any family pressure upon us uh, to maintain the family tradition or uh, the religious tradition. And, and no, I, there wouldn't be anyone, as Gail Irwin says in one of his uh, studies, how many people would be out in, anywhere in serving the Lord if, a, if it required family approval in order for that to happen. Just not going to happen. And so this is what Jacob did. The same thing is true. The same truth is true of Isaac in verse 20. Then he mentions Joseph in verse 22. Now, it's interesting concerning Joseph because you think about how uh, dramatic Joseph's life was and how many things God could have pulled out related to faith and being sold by his brothers and all that time in Egypt and, and imprisoned and all the wrong that was done and Potiphar's wife and all those things. And, and yet the Holy Spirit ignores all of it in speaking of his faith. And what he records as an example of Joseph's faith is that Joseph's faith was being demonstrated through the instructions that he gave to the children of Israel concerning the day that they would leave Egypt. And he said, when you get out of here, and you're going to get out of here, because God said we're going to get out of here, take my bones with you. Genesis chapter 50, Joseph said to his brethren, I'm dying, but God will surely visit you, bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones from here. And what Joseph was essentially speaking to them was, listen, I've seen Egypt, I've ruled over Egypt, but there's nothing that compares with being in the middle of God's plan for his people. I don't want my name or my legacy to be associated with Egypt I don't want it, but I want my legacy and my name to be associated with God's people. Don't even leave my bones here. Get them out of this place and take them with you. And all Joseph cared about in life was being numbered with God's people, associated with God's people in this world. And that was a very good reminder, by the way, to these Jewish believers who were thinking that uh, by of breaking away from God's people to return to the world. And it's also a good word, I think, to us as ministers as well. To take it from Joseph, there's nothing out there. Nothing. Nothing out there. The only meaningful thing that is happening in this world is what God is doing through his people. Don't be deceived. That's the only meaningful and satisfying thing that's being done. Stay there. Stay among God's people. Stay in God's calling. And then in verse 23, he mentions Moses' parents. And we remember that Pharaoh had alarmed over the uh, growing size of the slave population of Egypt, of the children of Israel within Egypt, uh, made the decree that all boys were to be killed immediately upon being born. 
And uh, here were these two, Moses' parents. Here comes Moses. And they defy that decree. And, and, and surely to defy that decree would have meant the death of any, any parent. And yet they did defy it and they kept Moses alive. Uh, when man's laws violated God's laws, they refused to keep man's laws in order to obey God's laws. And that's exactly what Peter spoke uh, to the Jewish religious leaders in Acts chapter 5 when they commanded him to cease preaching Christ, cease preaching about Jesus. Peter and the other apostles answered them and said, we ought to obey God more than man. And that's a good word for pastors because the way things are going, uh, this kind of thing is going to be happening more and more. Then he speaks of Moses himself in verses 24 through 29. He readily gave up all of the power, all of the fame, all of the fortune, all of the security uh, of life in Egypt in order to be identified with God's people at whatever the cost. Hebrews 11:25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. In verse 30, he speaks of Joshua, and we remember that battle plan that God gave uh, to Joshua. Quite a battle plan, isn't it? And uh, six times marching around quietly, and the seventh time, uh, and then the trumpet and the walls are going to come down and all, and a wild, crazy kind of plan for taking a city, and yet they obeyed it, and God gave them the victory. And as the old saying goes, they didn't fight the battle of Jericho, they faced the battle uh, of, of Jericho. And God will oftentimes do things in a way that, number one, gives us great victories in our service to the Lord, but he does it in a way that may causes everyone to realize that he did that. And boy, is that uncomfortable on our flesh. I like the old saying, it says that God has to push us beyond our own resources to discover his. And that's the truth. And that's where the life of faith is found. He mentions Rahab in verse 31. Remember, Rahab was the prostitute in the city of Jericho, and she received the spies that Joshua had sent out to spy out uh, the city. And so she hid them, and she confessed faith in the promises of God that he had given to the children of Israel. And she asked that when you take this city, would you spare my family? They said, sure, but be in this room and put a scarlet cord outside of the window so we will know exactly where you are. She did it, and God's the judgment that came upon the old, the whole city, uh, her and her family was spared that judgment. And the idea is speaking to these Hebrew Christians that if a pagan prostitute was willing to trust her life and her safety to God, having no significant history with God at all, then how much more those of us who have the kind of history with God uh, that we do have and of his faithfulness. He goes on to speak about others in verses 32 through 34, and he makes mention of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David 
Samuel and the prophets, and he doesn't speak specifically to their examples of faith in the face of hardship and in the face of difficulty, uh, but he could have easily done that. And the point that he, the idea is, he says, uh, in, in doing this, is how many more examples do I need to make in order to make my point? His idea is, I'm not running out of examples, I'm running out of time. And uh, he's a good preacher watching that clock. He knows I'm running out of time. He's a good boy. And then in verses 30 through 35, he speaks of still others, and he's, he's getting even more rapid, more condensed, because he doesn't even mention them by name. But he talks about these unnamed saints uh, that uh, well, uh, unnamed in the world, unknown by the world, but well-known to God. I hope you understand that wherever you are, nobody may know who you are. And isolated and all, you are well-known by God. He says that they were tortured, verse 35, and tortured with the idea of rejecting their faith, and they didn't uh, uh, renounce the Lord suffering they experienced in verse 36, the mockings, the scourgings, the chains, the imprisonment. Verse 37, stoned to death, sawn in two, verse 37. Now imagine that, sawn in two for faith in the Lord. And tradition tells us that uh, that's the death that uh, uh, the prophet Isaiah experienced, the method that Manasseh used in executing him. And yet he didn't deny the Lord. Tempted, verse 37. Uh, verse 37, slain with the sword. Verse 37, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And in verse 38, they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. In other words, they were expelled from their homes, expelled from their security, expelled from society treated worse than animals, subject to cold and hunger. And then he says in verse 38, and I love it, the world was not worthy of them. Whatever the world thought of them, that's what God thought of them. Well, let me close with a couple of applications. If for the rest of our lives, in times of uh, discouragement and hardship and persecution and trial, we realize that chapter 11 was written to be an encouragement to us. And again, here he takes all of these saints. He could have made his point without bringing out all of these Old Testament saints, but he brings out all of these Old Testament saints again in order to remind us that God's people, even under the Old Covenant, um, they remain faithful to God in every conceivable hardship, everything that the world could dish out, and then to turn, be able to turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and then hear these great Old Testament saints rise up from the pages of Scripture and be an encouragement to us, bearing witness to the fact that God had called them in the very same circumstance that we find ourselves in. And I would venture to guess that if you look at the 17 plus the others that are named, any trial we will ever find, we will find ourselves in line with one of these as a means of encouragement and for them to rise up and to speak encouragement to us that this life of faith and holiness it can be lived, and this race can be run, and it can be finished. 
Notice also in verse 1, he says, therefore, we also. And the idea is that they have run their race well, and he is uh, communicating to them and to us that now we are, uh, this is intended to inspire us to commit to finishing well uh, also. And finally, I want you to notice uh, again the phrase in uh, verse 1 of chapter 11, faith is the substance of things hoped for. And the idea here, and it's very significant, the idea is that faith protects something very, very vital in our lives. And the vital thing that faith protects in our lives is this thing called hope. That word substance that's used in that verse, uh, hypostasis, it literally means to stand under with the idea of providing a foundation, providing a substructure. And so our passage is telling us that faith provides a foundation to our hope. Each one of these Old Testament saints that are listed here, each one of them had hope in God. Every one of them did. They had, their hope was in him, and, they, and it was faith that sustained and protected their hope in every conceivable circumstance that they ended up facing. We tend to think of Hebrews chapter 11 as uh, the great faith chapter in the Bible. And that's true in a sense, but it's also untrue. Uh, in a sense. Hope is the real star of chapter 11. It's the leading actor, and faith is the supporting actor. Hope is the bride, and faith is the bridesmaid. Faith supports and protects hope in our lives. And hope is very, very valuable stuff in our lives as Christians and in our lives as ministers. We cannot afford to lose it. We must protect our hope by faith, with faith. And so the writer is saying, don't allow your hope, don't allow any promise that God has given you to die under any circumstances that you're in the middle of, or that we are facing. And the writer has just laid out through these Old Testament saints almost every conceivable circumstance that can kill our hope. And so here's the reason I think God has sent me to speak this first message. Here's the point. You say all of that to get to the point? You understand. God establish a context. Sometimes in a, in a message at a pastor's conference, the message isn't for everyone. It's for a few people. But that's the way the Lord works. What promise has God given you concerning your life and ministry that hasn't come to pass yet? What hope 
hasn't been realized yet. Don't you dare let that hope die and become a victim of your circumstances. You must protect that hope and that promise that he has given to you with your faith until that promise comes to pass. Hope is the expectation of coming good. And believe that about God. Know that about God in your life and in his calling upon your life. Believe it about your ministry, just like these Old Testament saints did. And protect hope with your faith, the absolute confidence in what God has said or promised, even when the fullness of the promise isn't seen yet. Hope and vision is priceless stuff. When God speaks it, that is priceless stuff that he's speaking into our lives. But that hope is under a constant attack in this Christian life, and it is in constant need of protection in this fallen world, and we protect it through faith. It has always been so, and it is true today. The fulfillment of his promise to you is coming. You keep the faith concerning that promise. And if it's been buried by the circumstances in your life to where you say that could never happen, that would, I was just cr- crazy, what in the world was I thinking, and now it's buried under the immediate circumstances of your life. You're not the first or the last related to that. And take that promise this morning and you dust that off and you claim it once again and you hold on to that because God's going to keep his promise to you. And in the meantime, protect it by faith. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for how that you're speaking, God. Thank you that you've spoken promises to us individually in our calling. And then we get beat up and we get thrown around and all of the hardship, all of the persecution, all of the everything that happens in this fallen world. And the promise ends up in a heap in some corner gathering dust. And wherever that has happened, Lord, in any of our hearts here today, we just pray that you just take us by the hand, walk us back over that corner, dust that promise off again, and reapply it to our lives. And give us the grace, Lord, to protect that promise by faith until we see you fulfill that promise. For surely you will fulfill your promises. And Lord, I pray and we pray for the men that have 
come to this conference to hear this one little thing be spoken to them, among other things, that you just take by your voice, that you would say amen to it into their hearts, and that you would confirm this message with accompanying signs and wonders in their heart, Lord. Thank you for vision. Thank you for your promises, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how intimately you speak into our life and into our calling. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Damian Kyle. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Damian's teaching ministry by visiting ccmodesto.com.